oftentimes circumstances appear to conflict with a promise. A dad tells his seven-year-old daughter that she can play outside after an evening service, but not until he's free to go out with her. Dad keeps talking. And his daughter, who desperately wants to go outside, concludes that he is never going to be done. So she's not really going to get a go. Circumstance has caused her to question the promise. A senior on his high school's football team has been told by the coach at the start of preseason practice that he would start at wide receiver. But as they begin running plays, a new kid who moved in from out of state is impressing the coaches, becoming more and more involved in running plays with the starting offense, and he catches everything. Circumstance has caused him to question the promise. A young married couple has been living in a tiny dated apartment for three years. The husband promised his wife that within five years, they would purchase a home with an open concept, walk-in closets, a soaker tub and double sink in the master bath, and everything else that she wanted. But the promotion and raise he was expecting still hasn't come. And with the combination of school debt, unexpected expenses, and rising home prices, it's not looking so good. Circumstances cause her to question the promise. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah wrote this book of prophecy during a prosperous time in in Israel's history. But in chapter 39, he states that a day is coming when the Babylonians would invade and take everything, including people, to Babylon. Well, true to his word, this very thing happened in 586. It was about 120 years after. And for the Jew who would go through this exile the hour would look very, very dark. And circumstances would cause them to question God. I mean, God had promised Israel a people, a land, and blessing. Yet because of their disobedience and idolatry, Jerusalem was going to be completely destroyed. And the kingdom of Judah would be reduced to a Babylonian province with most of the Jews being exiled. Up to this point in the book, the theme is set over and over that God could be trusted in the face of all the threats from surrounding nations. He had promised to preserve and deliver his people, and he had showed them over and over his ability to do so. Yet the people of Israel were continually tempted not only to trust other nations to help them, but also to turn to their gods. The temptation to worship idols would certainly be heightened once the Babylonians arrived. Do you identify at all with the Jews in this struggle? God promises one thing, and your circumstances seem to be saying something Completely different. 
When this happens, we are so easily tempted to interpret God's character and promises through the lens of our circumstances and to turn to idols just like his people did years and years ago. Although we would probably never say that God is either too weak to keep his word or he really doesn't know the best way to make it happen, we oftentimes act exactly as if that's the case. So so consider three promises that God gives us in his word. He promises to sanctify his people. God continues to transform his children more and more into the image of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And he promises to complete that which he started, Philippians 1.6. The process of sanctification begins at the moment of conversion and it continues throughout this life. God's Spirit works to change every believer. Yet it can be very easy for us to look at a spouse or a child or a friend who professes faith in Christ but is not making the progress we think they should and respond by either somehow trying to make the change happen ourselves or by just giving up, questioning if the marriage will even work, or if it's even worth continuing to put forth the effort to be an instrument of grace in their life. It's just too frustrating, too discouraging, and and even painful. When this occurs, our circumstance has become stronger than God's promise. And rather than rely on God to do his sanctifying work, We have embraced the idol of control, personal happiness, or a positive image. God promises to give his people what is good. Psalm 84, Romans 28, we we see he promises this. He's both wise enough to know what is good for us and powerful enough to give it to us. Yet it can be very easy to look at circumstances in doubt. For example, a single adult may think that part of God's good for them should include a mate, but the years are passing by and there's no one. So, so he or she becomes consumed with marriage and possibly even begins pursuing someone contrary to the wisdom and counsel of godly people. I mean, it really could be anything that you think would be good for you, but does not seem to be happening. Your circumstance has become stronger than God's promise, and you have turned to the idol of a desire, likely even a very good desire. God promises to provide sufficient grace to endure suffering. God's wise enough to know what trials we need, and he's powerful enough to help us endure. Yet we can easily look at our suffering, our financial trials, our challenging marriage or other relational struggles, or anything else we would change if we could, and conclude that God's grace really is not enough to help us endure. So we're tempted then to turn to the things of this world to numb our pain, or just simply distract us. And we so easily think that, what can I do to try to fix 
or manipulate the circumstances. So rather than glory in our suffering and trust in God's grace to endure, we've turned to the idol of comfort or self-sufficiency. Can you relate it all to any of those examples? I know I can. We could go on and on. I mean, there are so many promises of God that we allow our circumstances to call into question. And although we're very far removed from ancient Israel and the exiled Jews at their moment of conflict between God's promise and circumstances, we tend to question God's power and wisdom and turn to idols just like they did. And so the word from God to them through the prophet Isaiah is exactly what we need to hear. Immediately after this prophecy of exile in chapter 39, Isaiah 40 sets the stage and it establishes the tone for the rest of the book. It addresses the question concerning God's desire and ability to deliver the Jews. And Isaiah makes it clear that in spite of their horrible circumstances, God is the sole ruler of the universe and he can be trusted to keep his word. This chapter and the ones to follow proclaims the arrival of God's deliverance and it trumpets the persistent promise of a new exodus. It calls the Jews to get their eyes off their circumstances and on to God. So verses 1 through 11 are about the good news of salvation for Jerusalem. It's God's desire to deliver his people from the Babylonians. And verses 12 through 26 argue that he is able to deliver them. And it does so in this section with quite possibly the most overwhelming and convincing case in all of Scripture of God's incomparable greatness. And then verses 27 through 31 indicate that God intends to deliver his people. So let's then consider this chapter Please follow along as I read. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, 
Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dusts of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it in silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely as they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth faint and be weary, and young men fall, shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We're not going to cover this entire chapter. It's really worthy of several sermons. But, but we want to grab a hold of the theme which ties it all together. And that's the call in verse 9. Behold your God. As the exiled Jews struggled with their circumstances, that is what they needed to do more than anything. And that is our greatest need as well. 
of all the things about God we could behold in this chapter, this morning we're only going to focus on two, his power and his wisdom. So first, we must behold God's power. Verse 12 is where we'll focus on primarily for that. And, and, and I, Calvin said of this verse that, that by naming measures which, by, which are used by men in small matters, quote, God accommodates himself to our ignorance. For thus does the Lord often prattle with us and borrow comparisons from matters that are familiar to us when he speaks of his majesty so that our limited and ignorant minds may better understand his greatness and majesty. So, in verse 12, as we consider God's power, Isaiah asks, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 70% of the earth's surface is an ocean. Imagine as much as possible how much water is in our oceans alone. Well, the Atlantic, Pacific, Indian, and Arctic Oceans combined for a total of 326 million cubic miles. And in our Great Lakes, there are six quadrillion gallons of water. And of course, that doesn't even include all of our 10,000 lakes here in Minnesota. Think of all that water. And just imagine placing it in the palm of one of your hands. Isaiah asked the Jews, who's done that? No one but God. He asks, who has marked off the heavens with a span? For many years, astronomers believe the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years in diameter. But new research indicates it's closer to 200,000 light years in diameter. Well, how big is that? If you could ride a light beam at the speed of 186,000 miles a second, it would take you 200,000 years to go from one side to the other. If that's just a little bit too fast for you, you could get in a car and drive 60 miles an hour, and it would take you more than 2 trillion years to cross. And estimates are that the Milky Way is only one of up to 10 trillion such galaxies. Can you fathom how big our universe is? I mean, imagine measuring this with your hand. The distance from the end of your thumb to the end of your pinky, about eight inches. Who has done that? No one but God. There's about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And if we use that as the average number of stars in all 10 trillion galaxies, scientists estimate the total number of stars is one septillion. So that's a one with 24 zeros after it. But scientists emphasize that this is likely a gross underestimation, leading them to conclude that really the number of stars is infinite. Verse 22 says that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And verse 26, Isaiah says, Look up at the stars and see who created them. 
He who brings out their host by number. God knows how many there are. Calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, none of them are missing. He asks, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? Imagine all the dust in all the dirt of our earth measured out literally here in a basket, which is analogous to our quartz. Every speck of dust, every speck of dirt contained in one-fourth of a gallon. Who's done that? No one but God. He asks, who has weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, 29,000 feet tall. In our country, the largest mountain range is the Rocky Mountains, which stretch for 900 miles. There's approximately 34 mountain ranges in the world. There's even one in the South Pacific Ocean that parallels the coast of South America. And how can we forget our very own Buck Hill, right? <laughs> in all the other hills scattering the world. The thought of the poundage of all these mountains combined, it's absolutely staggering. And it's utterly impossible to somehow devise a way to weigh them. And Isaiah asks, who's weighed all the mountains and hills in a balance? Kind of like what we use to weigh the VBS offerings. No one but God. Uh, this is only one verse, but what a powerful description of God's power in creation. And, and the point of this verse is this. If God is powerful enough to create and sustain the universe, He's powerful enough to keep His promises, even if you're not seeing them fulfilled in your circumstances. He's powerful enough to sanctify you in the struggling Christians in your life. He's powerful enough to give you what is good. And he's powerful enough to give you the grace that you need to endure your trials. So when our circumstances cause us to doubt God's promises, we must behold God's power in creation. Second, we must behold God's wisdom. Note there in verse 13. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? The, the spirit of the Lord here, the, the word spirit has the idea of the total interior life, including volitional, effectual, cognitive aspects. So Isaiah asked, who can accurately comprehend the full makeup of God and tell him what to do? Marduk was the chief god in the Babylonian religion. And he could not proceed in creation without consulting the other gods. So God is setting himself apart here by saying that he gets advice from no one, because no one else knows either how to create a universe 
or to run it. Drawing from these verses, the Apostle Paul concludes after three chapters of explaining the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's salvation plan. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments in his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. I think it's relatively easy for us to see God's wisdom when things work out the way we want them to. God's so wise. I mean, just look what he did. But during those times when things do not work out the way we want them to, he's still wise. And even then, in those moments, we must behold his wisdom. Because God really does know how and when it's best to change those we love who are struggling to grow. God really does know exactly what is good for you and both how and when to provide it. God really does know why you're suffering and how to best provide the grace you need to endure. And in all of this, we must remember that apparent delay never means either a lack of awareness or a lack of ability on God's part. We tend to think that way, but it's not the case. Isaiah has shown in this entire chapter that God is not a part of his creation, which means that his plans are not necessarily discoverable by means of his creation. A full grasp of God's purposes is beyond our human understanding. As Isaiah says later in chapter 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when you find yourself thinking what the exiled Jews did in verse 27, that God must not be aware of your circumstances, or just doesn't care. You've got to remember what the songwriter captured so well. God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to make mistakes. So when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. So God's power and his wisdom we need to see them both when our circumstances seem to conflict with God's promises. As J.I. Packer says so well in his classic work, Knowing God, wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed. Power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united. And this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust.
I think we can assume Isaiah knew that the Jews in exile would know the answers to these hypothetical questions that have been asked. And I suspect that before we even considered these verses, most of you knew the answers as well. Like the exiled Jews, you've probably heard that only God is capable of both creating and running a universe. So why then do you think Isaiah included verse 21? Take a look at it. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Well, the verbs in this verse are in the imperfect tense and therefore are better translated, will you not know? Can you not hear? And as we can infer from chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah, it is perfectly possible to know, but not really know, and to hear, but not really hear. See, for Isaiah, it was not merely a question of whether or not the exiled Jews were aware of God's incomparable power and wisdom, but whether or not this knowledge would lead them to trust in his promises. I think that's our struggle too, is it not? What practical difference does this declaration of God's power and wisdom make in your life as you interpret your circumstances? Does it give you confidence that God will keep his promises? Even though you're not seeing how they will be fulfilled now? Does this knowledge keep you from turning to idols, to other gods that you think will provide what you want? It's a battle, isn't it? I I know this in my own heart. It's a battle. But beholding God and also trusting his character in our circumstances is a battle we've got to fight. We've got to fight this battle by faith. And in this fight, if perhaps there's a key or something of extreme significance to us, it's beholding Christ and considering God's power and wisdom as seen in Jesus Christ. God kept his promise to Judah. Seventy years later, he brought them back to Jerusalem. And the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel. More Jews returned under Ezra, and the wall was rebuilt under Nehemiah. But in all of this, Israel, history of Israel... There is so much more going on than God just keeping these physical promises. You see, Judah's greatest need was not deliverance from the Babylonians, but deliverance from their sin. And the same is true for all of us. See, your greatest need is not a successful career, fulfilling relationships, financial security, or whatever else it is you think will give you peace and happiness. Your greatest need is deliverance from your sin. Sin that condemns you before a holy and a just God. 
But there's good news. There's good news. Deliverance is offered, freely offered to us. Scattered throughout the book of Isaiah, there are prophecies of a coming Messiah, one who would come to save from sin. Verses 1 through 11 here of chapter 40 prophesied deliverance from the Babylonians, which happened. But they have their complete fulfillment in John the Baptist as he came announcing the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. In in chapter 53, Isaiah prophesied that this Savior would suffer and die, paying the penalty that God demands for sin. Verse 5 of chapter 53 says this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So in Isaiah's call here for us to behold God's wisdom and power, he's pointing us to the cross. For there we see the pinnacle of God's power and wisdom on display. In Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1, Scripture describes the good news of Christ crucified and risen as the power of God, which means it is, quote, the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. And imagine the power necessary to bear the sins of the whole world, defeat death, and raise Jesus from the dead. And imagine the wisdom necessary to devise this perfect plan of redemption. Only the creator and ruler of the universe could pull that off. And he has in Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning, do you know him? Have you experienced the power of sins forgiven, a transformed life, and a restored relationship with your creator through Jesus Christ? If not, I urge you to turn from your sin to trust in the good news of Christ crucified and risen so you can personally experience God's power and wisdom. And if that's something you have questions about or want to talk to somebody about further, please let us know. Don't leave this morning without saying something to somebody. We would love to talk with you more about how God's power and wisdom is revealed in the cross. And Christian, in this struggle we've been thinking about, in this struggle between trusting God to keep his promises and our circumstances, beholding Christ in the cross is absolutely essential. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says that all the promises of God, all the promises of God, find their yes in Christ. So we need to remember that God is up to so much more than giving us everything that we think would be good to have. Or easy relationships with family and friend, or comfort, ease, and freedom from our suffering. He's given us Christ. 
And without Jesus, his promises mean nothing. But with Christ, we have everything we need to trust God's power and to trust his wisdom to keep every single one of them. Think about this. You and I will never face a circumstance worse than the cross. As bad as things may be in our life, we will never experience anything worse than the cross. We will never suffer that much pain. We will never experience that much injustice. If in what appeared at the time at least to be the worst of all circumstances, if, if in that moment God was displaying the pinnacle of his power and wisdom, then we can have no doubt that his power and wisdom are at work in our circumstances. So as the 19th century Baptist pastor Octavius Winslow counsels us, look at the cross. Behold his precious gift transfixed to it and that by his own hand and for your sins. Then look at your present circumstances. Survey your needs, your trials, your chastisements, your bereavements, your heart-sickening, heart-breaking tribulations, and know that God is still love. If he had love strong enough, deep enough to give you Jesus, to tear him as it were from his bosom and to transfix him on yonder accursed tree for your iniquities, has he not love enough to bow his ear to your cry and his heart to your sorrow? Will he not rescue you from this difficulty, deliver you out of this trouble, shield you in this temptation, supply this need and support and comfort you in this grief? Oh yes, he will. Doubt it not. The cross of Calvary is a standing pledge. Standing until sin and guilt, need and woe shall be no more. That God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will with him also freely give us all things necessary to our good and promotive of his glory. So Christian, in our time of exile, as we await our return to Eden, the new heavens and the new earth in God's presence, have circumstances in your life caused you to question God's promises? Can you see places at which you've turned from God to idols? Well, like the exiled Jews of old, our greatest need in the conflict between God's promises and our circumstances is to behold our God. We must see him in his power and we must see him in his wisdom. And as we do, we must look to Christ in the cross. Trusting in God's wisdom and power displayed there as undeniable proof that every single promise of God will be kept. Father, 
Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Not only have you given us creation to look at and to see your glory in, but you've given us a book where we can read about your greatness, which confirms what our heart senses and knows that you're powerful and wise. Father, I pray that you will help all of us to be encouraged by this ancient prophecy, by this counsel that Isaiah gave to the Jews in a time of suffering. Lord, help us to recognize in our trials and our circumstances that are hard. Lord, help us to see you. Help us to look to you in your power and in your wisdom. And Father, grant us the faith to believe and to trust and to know that you are faithful and you will never, ever, ever fail to keep a promise you've given us. And Father, for any who are here who do not know you through Christ, who are still in the state that Paul described in Romans 1 of suppressing your truth, of rejecting your power in creation, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you and open their eyes to see Christ as the only sacrifice for their sins, as the ultimate display of your power and wisdom. Father, draw them to Christ and may they experience your power and wisdom that is displayed in him. Do this work in us, Lord. May we be a church that continues to deepen in our faith, in your promises for us. It's in Christ we ask these things. Amen.